Good evening. President Biden says he has no uh, intentions to send U.S. troops to Ukraine to fight the Soviet, the Russians. Um, but he did refer to the border there as America's Eastern Front. Uh, Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, uh, speaks about Trump and how she could never forgive him for uh, getting his supporters to attack the U.S. Capitol and the uh, people in the Congress, the members of Congress who've been the recipients of the uh, the bile of certain Republican and conservative uh, members of the House uh, have fought back with a um, law with a, where they wish to uh, strip one of those members of their rights and from their committee assignments. And then we come to New York where there's good news for environmentalists that the Eastside Coastal Residency Project, which uh, aims to chop down a thousand trees and replace a park on the Lower East Side with a flood project, has again been stopped by the courts. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. President Joe Biden is convening global leaders tomorrow for the administration's inaugural summit for democracy, even as the United States itself is facing some of the gravest threats in years to its democratic traditions and institutions right here at home. But the conference is occurring in the shadow of record tensions between the world's largest nations. Today, Biden assured reporters he had no intention of sending troops to Ukraine, where his administration is charged in the face of Russian denials that the uh, Kremlin wants to invade. That is not on the table. What is not, a, they are not, we have a moral obligation and a legal obligation to our NATO allies. If they were to attack under Article 5, it's a sacred obligation. That obligation does not extend to NATO, I mean to Ukraine, but it would depend upon what the rest of the NATO countries were willing to do as well. But the idea the United States is going to unilaterally use force to confront Russia invading Ukraine is not on the, in the cards right now. But what will happen is there will be severe consequences. And referring to the Eastern Front in language eerily reminiscent of another Western invader of Russia 80 years ago, Biden says the U.S. already maintains powerful military forces in Europe, but threatens severe consequences if Russia invades. I made it clear that we would provide the defensive capability to the uh, Ukrainians as well. The good news is, the good news, the positive news is that thus far our teams have been in constant contact. We hope by Friday we're going to be able to stay and announce to you that we're having meetings at a higher level, not just with us, but with at least four of our major NATO allies and Russia to discuss the future of Russia's concerns relative to NATO writ large and whether or not we can work out any accommodations as it relates to bringing down the temperature along the eastern front. President Joe Biden. Putin has reportedly promised Moscow will submit proposals for a security dialogue with the United States in a few days. He affirmed his denial of planning to attack Ukraine, but said that Moscow can't remain indifferent to NATO's possible expansion to its neighbor. U.S. intelligence officials have determined that Russia has moved 70,000 troops near the Ukraine border and has made preparations for a possible invasion early next year. Moscow has denied any plans to attack Ukraine, saying the United States is just out to smear Russia.
And meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters she would never forgive former President Donald Trump for inciting the insurrection on January 6th. She says no one else should be blamed because no one expected the president to green light an attack on the Capitol. To say this about one year ago, and that is, I don't think that whatever preparation anybody would have made, that anybody could predict that the president of the United States would incite an insurrection and a violent one. So I don't fault anybody for not knowing who have responsibility of communication and the rest on all of this, that the president, the president was instigating this. Uh, Pelosi spoke as House progressives introduced a resolution stripping Representative Lauren Boebert of her committee assignments. She's a Republican uh, from Colorado, accusing her of racism and Islamophobia and threats she made towards Representative Ilan Omar, who is Muslim. Pelosi didn't sign on to the measure, but she said she feels their pain. In the Capitol that night, we were going to honor our constitutional responsibilities, even though they had an assault on that January 6th date fraught with meaning from the Constitution. When I saw what it meant to the staff, the way it traumatized them, it was frightening. That's something that you, you cannot... You cannot just say, well, we'll do legislation to make sure this or that doesn't happen again. You cannot erase that. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And days after Kentucky Republican Representative Thomas Massey posted a holiday photo of his family holding an array of guns, Representative Boebert did the same with each of her even younger children holding a long gun as they posed with their mother around a Christmas tree. The tweet read, the Boeberts have your six at Representative Thomas Massey, no spare ammo for you, though. She tweeted that last night. It was a tribute to Massey's original photo, which included his family posing with guns around their own Christmas tree with a cheerful greeting. Merry Christmas and a wish for Santa to please bring ammo. Fred Gutenberg, whose daughter Jamie was killed in the 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, criticized Bobert as an irresponsible gun-owning parent who is likely raising a future school shooter or domestic terrorist. Domestic terrorist. Meanwhile, today, Massachusetts Democrat Representative Ayanna Presley introduced legislation condemning Boebert's Islamophobic language and stripping her committee assignments. Nearly a dozen House members co-sponsored the resolution. Presley said it's time for Boebert to own her racism. We stand in solidarity with Representative Omar and our Muslim colleagues who for too long have been targets of unprecedented hate and vitriol for a member of Congress to repeatedly and unapologetically use hateful, racist and Islamophobic tropes towards a Muslim colleague is dangerous. When we ask for an apology and acknowledgement of her racist and blatantly false comments, we were met with even more racism and bigotry. When we called on Republican leader McCarthy to hold this member of his caucus accountable, we were met with defiance and gaslighting. Enough is enough. Ayanna Presley and Michigan Democrat Rashid Tlaib, also a Muslim, weeped as she implored Republicans to stop making statements that she says they know will lead to violence against Muslims in the streets of America. You know, I get emotional, but let me tell you, all of you, your solidarity means so much. Because when she said that, right, I mean, I mean, when she said that, she was evoking violence on Muslims all across our country. 
And so it's important to know, of course, Ilhan Omar, when I check up on her, she's like, sis, I survived war. I can survive this. She says that so that I can stop crying. <laughs> but I, I also know that this is hard. This is hard for all of us. You know, women in politics, the violence towards us is increasing. I mean, Debbie, I remember when you were getting them. I remember all of us. I mean, it's just overwhelming. And all we want to do is serve the community that raised us, the community that brought us here. We do it so much from love. And so I just want you all to know that I am so incredibly grateful that you all are up here and sponsoring a resolution. We shouldn't have to beg and urge Republicans to do what's right here. You know, they have Muslims in their communities. I know they do. They call me to say, well, how can I talk to them? How can I get them to see us? Rashid, I have a clinic in their community. I do this nonprofit work in their community. How come they don't see us as fellow, as neighbors, as fellow Americans? It is hard. It is hard being Muslim in our country right now, and this makes it worse. And so let me tell you, it is important for us to understand this is a national platform that we cannot allow her to use to evoke not only just is not only hate. And I think, Barbara Lee, you put it perfectly. It's not just hate speech, which is God awful, but it's also hate speech that's evoking violence and danger towards a whole people in our country. My two sons deserve to grow up in a country where their faith, their religion will not be used as a target. That's why we're introducing this resolution. We are sending a strong message that this is hate that will not be tolerated in the halls of Congress. We are standing with you that you deserve and you belong in our country. You deserve human dignity and you deserve to feel safe in your communities. And that is... Rashid Tlaib, she's a Mission Democrat, speaking today in the Capitol. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. A homeless man is facing a list of charges after police say he set fire to a Christmas tree-like sculpture outside the Fox News studios in Midtown early this morning. It happened just after midnight on the plaza located at 6th Avenue near 48th Street. Police say the man, identified as Craig Tamanaha, 49 was observed by Fox News security outside the office climbing the 50-foot-tall tree before setting it on fire, but they don't know how he did it. The NYPD says Tamaha is charged with arson, criminal mischief, criminal trespassing, nuisance, endangerment, tampering, and disorderly conduct. An angry Fox spokesperson says the conservative news network will rebuild the tree. And Mayor Bill de Blasio is down to his last days of his two terms as mayor of New York. He's been waxing philosophical about his time in office. But first, as usual, he announced the latest COVID indicators in the city. The first indicator, very good news. The number of vaccinations in the city keeps growing constantly and in big jumps, I'm happy to say, because of all the new realities, the new mandates, the availability of boosters. Uh, we're at today, doses administered today, 12,719,737. Absolutely astounding number. But here's where we should be concerned. We're starting to see more and more the effect of more and more cases of COVID. So the daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19 today's report, 157 patients. Confirmed positivity level, 35.19%. Hospitalization rate per 100,000 New Yorkers, 1.06%. And then new reported cases on a seven-day average, 1,990 cases, almost 2,000 cases. So this is painting the picture of both the problem and the solution. That triple threat, colder weather, a lot of gatherings, 
Omicron solution. More and more vaccination, stronger and stronger efforts to get more people vaccinated. And that's the mayor giving his indicators earlier today. But he also admitted that in one of those sort of moments when he was thinking about his term and was asked by a reporter what he thought he had done wrong during his uh, time in office, what he could have learned from, the mayor said he erred while interacting with the New York media during the past eight years, conceding he often acted in a what he called off-putting manner while pleading his case to reporters. But he added, as usual, it takes two to tango. I think history has spoken on Governor Cuomo. And unfortunately, you know, more and more keeps coming out. And I say unfortunately because it's sad. It really is sad. It's sad for the people of this state to see so many things that were done that were wrong. And more will come out. I feel that I tried my very best under a extremely difficult and strange situation to deal with a governor who was so often doing the wrong thing. I'll be confessional and say, I think when there's something wrong, you can't say, oh, it's somebody else, right? I mean, there's something wrong and there has been something wrong in my relationship with the media. Well, that's obviously to some extent on me. And it always takes two to tango, but that's got to be to some extent on me. And I think in retrospect, you know, maybe in the way I debated stuff, people found it off-putting. I didn't mean it to be. Uh, maybe it's good uh, to acknowledge a little more openly. I, I got my share of missteps. I got my share of mistakes for sure. I got things I thought I was right on that I was wrong on. You know, maybe it's better to be more open about that and, and to just help people understand. You know, I, look, I think I've got some of the answers. I sure don't think I've got all of the answers. That's something I'm going to keep working on. I also don't think any book is fully written until it's over. And that's the mayor earlier today with his mea culpa. NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea is also leaving. He uh, spent some time saying that there was an improvement in crime fighting in the city. But he added that the new mayor, Eric Adams, has his work cut out for him. What we will talk about when we talk about the crime statistics for the month of uh, November, what we are seeing is recidivism. And that will be the challenge, I think, to build on and to make inroads in for the next administration. When you see some of the shootings that we see, I'll just throw a few statistics out at you that we were going over this morning. The people that we are seeing currently being arrested for shootings, 30 percent almost, have an open felony case. These are indicators of challenges ahead that we have to kind of hone and make improvements on. On youth arrests that we make, and when we talk about youth being arrested under 18 years of age, the number of arrests that are made on youth in this city that are for a firearm is now 10%. 10% of all the arrests we're making. That is a jump up. A lot of good news, a lot of improvement that we've made. We know we have a lot of work to do. And I. And that is the outgoing NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea. We'll be having a lot more from comments, a lot more comments on Shea, what people in the Black Lives Matter and other movements in the city uh, believe have been the real accomplishments or lack of accomplishments of Dermot Shea as Commissioner of the NYPD later this week. A state appeals court judge halted construction today in the city's effort to remake East River Park as a flood barrier for Manhattan's Lower East Side marking the second time in as many months that a legal challenge has stalled the city's signature climate resiliency project. The folks who had been fighting this were dejected as of even a day ago, seeing their trees being cut down of the thousand, the beginnings of the destruction of a thousand trees to be clear-cut for the project. A very unusual circumstance. 
things really changed. The last stoppage lasted weeks. The latest will stay in force for months due to a slower pace of the appeals court. On Monday, after a previous TRO was overturned, the city moved in to chop down 13 trees. Another five followed this morning before the new stay came down at about 9 a.m. Four activists were arrested on Monday as chainsaws did their work. And attorney Arthur Schwartz, who filed the appeal, says there had been five prior to this morning, and he expected this day to be the last, literally the last, and the city to go on with this project. But Schwartz says he was pleasantly surprised, as was everybody else, when a very rare event occurred. This decision in the Court of Appeals says that the decision of the appellate division on November 30th is stayed, which our reading is that means that we go back to where we were on November 4th, which is with everything stayed. The city did pull all the workers off today, um, but what they're going to do tomorrow remains to be seen, and we may wind up back in court arguing over the meaning of some very rather obtuse language from the Court of Appeals. Is it often obtuse, as you said, to uh, figure out what these judges mean in these decisions? It took me 42 years to get into this situation. I've never gotten a stay out of the Court of Appeals, so I can't tell you what it usually means. Why is that so unusual? When you lose five to nothing, we lost five to nothing, you don't have an automatic right to appeal. It's like people understand like when the Supreme Court takes the case, the U.S. Supreme Court. So the Court of Appeals works the same way. You have to petition for review. Um, and so in one document, I, I said, consider this case, and while you're considering it, put the whole project on hold. Most of the time, you don't get situations like that. I can't tell you that it's, it's very unusual, I have to say, to get this kind of an order out of the Court of Appeals, and, but we're thrilled that we got it, and we're pretty sure it means they can't do any work, at least until December 20th, which is when the Court of Appeals is supposed to consider the issue again. But I do think that that's just going to be a date for submitting papers. It's not like we're going to be standing in front of some judges on December 20th. How long do one of these cases usually take? Well, if there's a stay, the shortest amount of time it could take is three to five months. If they don't put it on an expedited briefing schedule, it could take a year. Either way, this stay is going to be in effect for through de Blasio's administration. De Blasio doesn't get to cut any more trees down. But they already cut 13. Do they have uh, have it any more? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, they? Think they, I think they got, a, uh, got five more today before we got the order. And they also destroyed the tennis courts. They destroyed the tennis courts. Right. Are they, tennis might, courts can be rebuilt. Trees can't. Might they be forced to uh, find new trees and rebuild the tennis court by this? No, it would stop things cold. You know, those trees are gone. That's part of what we argued to the court is this is one of these cases where you can win and it's a pyrrhic victory because by the time you win, they've cut down a thousand trees. It's irreparable. And the court seemed to agree with that, that we have some merit to our argument. It's a very unique question. There's a project going on that is, at least by the city's description, it's partly a park project partly a flood protection project. There's never been a case like that before that the Court of Appeals has ruled on. 
So it's a unique question, but they're in a situation where we could win and we would have lost because the park would have been destroyed. That's exactly the kind of situation that you get this kind of a restraining order. So hopefully this means we're in for at least a five month delay, if not longer, and then hopefully we'll win. And that is Arthur Schwartz, the attorney in the case. A member of the group East River Action is uh, Tommy Loeb, a longtime resident of the neighborhood. He says the government was never straight with the residents of the neighborhood and misrepresented the thousands of NYCHA residents who live along the river. I think all you have to do is look at Mayor de Blasio's last few weeks in office where he is trying to ram everything through from Soho's uh, NoHo Soho rezoning to the Gowanus to East River Park. And he doesn't want to leave it to the next administration and the next city council, which, as you know, we're getting a whole cadre of brand new council people. We're looking for them to get us what we haven't been able to get, and that's independent outside expert advice to review this plan to see what is the best plan to both protect the Lower East Side and the park. Carlina Rivera, the city council person who is elected as a friend of the people, does she represent NYCHA and the Latino voices in New York? We have never seen an open meeting at NYCHA where the residents there fully had an opportunity to see the full breadth of this plan, where they got a chance to be invited, address the plan, or to ask questions about the plan. They have relied on one or two tenant leaders as their voices. And one of them, including the one who was just quoted extensively in the New York Times, Nancy Ortiz, has been quoted in every article, and she has a conflict. She has a job with New York City Housing Authority. So she is far from an independent voice in talking about this project. Anything you would like to add? The construction company and others might try to sneak in, and we will be keeping watch every day to make sure that the temporary restraining order is abided by. And folks will be uh, meeting in the park, East River Park, on the east side of Manhattan, stretching from about 14th Street down to about Grand Street. Ian Michaels, the head of public information for the city's Department of Design and Construction, which is overseeing the project, said in an emailed statement, the contractor has secured the East River Park area, remains at the ready to resume work, and is continuing to order supplies for future construction. Michaels noted that the city has already prevailed twice in two different courts in the lawsuit brought by East River Park Action and, and that work on the northern section of the flood protection plan at Astor Levy Park is well underway. And finally, banana peels, chicken bones, and leftover veggies soon will be allowed in most California trash bins under a mandatory food recycling program designed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from landfills. The goal is to turn food scraps into compost or energy rather than let them decay and emit methane, a gas many more times potent than carbon. Environmentalists in Davis County say the city is ready to start sending food waste back to the earth and not to the landfill. If there's any contaminations that's large, it gets removed and then the material gets uh, uh, grind up. And this 
material gets marketed for um, agricultural use, and we also have programs for residents to come out here and get compost. This is Senate Bill 1383. It was passed in 2016, and the goal of the bill is to actually reduce methane emissions and other short-lived climate pollutants. Uh, now, methane is released when we put organic waste into landfills, so that's the portion that I'm looking at because a lot of the organic waste that we put in landfills is actually food waste. This is a good way we can really just tell the story of food and the fact that we really need to do what's called closing the loop. It's really the food comes from the land, and we really should be returning that back to the land. environmentalists in Davis, California. There's a growing recognition about the role food waste plays in climate change before emitting methane as it decays, food that no one eats wastes energy and resources on production, transportation, and packaging. Eat your veggies. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.